You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. The president and first lady are heading to Dover Air Force Base today to meet the families of the three fallen American service members and to take part in the dignified transfer of their remains. It's been five days since they were killed in a drone attack on a U.S. installation in Jordan known as Tower 22. Yesterday, Defense Secretary Austin addressed next steps at his first press conference since the controversy surrounding the secrecy of his cancer diagnosis and subsequent emergency hospitalization. Joining me now, Missy Ryan, diplomatic and national security reporter at The Washington Post. Missy, welcome back to First Look. Thank you. So what did Secretary Austin say about about the U.S. retaliation for that drone attack? What, what options are on the table? Secretary Austin did not give specifics, but what we are expecting in keeping with what Austin himself said, what the White House has said in terms of vowing that there will be a response for this fatal attack that killed three U.S. service members in Jordan, is that there will be some sort of attack that is focused on either militia, Iranian-backed militia, or Iranian military, uh, potentially Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is part of Iran's military targets. But we don't really expect those to be inside of Iran. We expect them to be outside of Iran in Iraq and Syria, where there's been this stream of more than 160 attacks on U.S. personnel in recent months or potentially somewhere else in the region. Uh, As you know, Iran has this network of proxy groups that it backs everywhere from Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, and also in Yemen. Miss, I wonder if you, if you've, um, in your reporting, picked up the same information that other outlets have been reporting since yesterday, and that is um, this anticipation that whatever the U.S. retaliation um, is will be a quote-unquote campaign that could last for weeks, not just a one-and-done. Uh, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? One yeah. and done attack, if you will. Yeah, absolutely, Jonathan. So that's something that, you know, the White House has suggested pretty clearly that what you see on the first day is not going to be the end of what the Biden administration is going to be doing. I feel like they uh, they have a sense that they need to demonstrate to Iran that this is a serious escalation that occurred because it caused these American casualties. Um, and they want to um, really inflict some pain. There's been a lot of criticism domestically that President Biden is facing from Republicans, that he failed to deter these attacks, um, that he wasn't tough enough on Iran. So there's some messaging happening, obviously, to Iran to tell them to potentially nudge some of these proxy groups to cool things off for a while, at least, and also to the U.S. Congress, to the political critics that President Biden is facing. Um, It's an election year. We can never lose sight of that. Um, I don't think that's probably the primary consideration, but certainly his um, the perception of him needing to um, show that they're willing to be tougher than they have in the past. As you will know, there's been a series of American airstrikes that have already been conducted on um, Iranian-backed militants in Iraq, in Syria, and in Yemen since the whole Gaza war kicked off on on October 7th. But they've been pretty 
narrowly targeted attacks. They have um, hit weapons depots. They've hit you know launching sites, specific UAVs that were taking flight. And so I think we're going to be some uh, um, see something a little bit more um, painful, if you will, for the Iranian uh, military machine and the militia machine that it backs. And that could be something in keeping with the one um, different kind of strike we've seen in recent months, which was a militia leader that was targeted in Baghdad in early January. So uh, they're really going to be looking to send a message here. Mm -hmm. So then, given everything that you just said, um, Missy, what military acts could Iran engage in and how are, uh, and, and how are they factoring into how President Biden might respond? Yeah, that's always got to be part of the calculus here, because if you remember there, the United States has tens of thousands of American forces across the Middle East, um, you know, from uh, Qatar to Bahrain to Iraq and Syria, Lebanon. And so what um, what the and in addition, it also has sort of softer targets. There are, you know, American consulates. There are, you know, American uh sort of sites that represent American interest and um, businesses, culture, all of that. And all of those could be potential targets if Iran wanted to send a retaliatory message. So they're looking to sort of thread the needle where they inflict enough pain to hopefully um, really have a, the deterrent effect that they haven't had so far without kicking off a whole sort of um, painful series of, of uh, retaliatory strikes on, on American sites in the region. And then how worried is the administration about um, a widespread um, escalation of the conflict in the region? That is also something yeah. that is top of mind. I think it is. This is really the million dollar question is how do they um, most effectively, effectively thread the needle here, which is inflicting pain without um, fueling the flames of violence, which are really already at this very um, alarming level across the region since October 7th. Remember, uh, militia attacks on American forces are not new in Iraq and Syria. This has been happening uh, for years now, on and off. And uh, Iranian-backed militias were responsible or blamed for the deaths of hundreds of troops during the U.S. war in Iraq that started in 2003. So, um, you know, they they need to keep that in mind. But as Secretary Austin said, when it comes to the Houthi attacks, for example, which I, I put in a slightly different category, um, the, these attacks by the Houthis have been on um, commercial ships, on some some naval ships, but mostly commercial ships off the Arabian Peninsula. And they are, the stated aim is to sort of act in solidarity with the people of Gaza. You know, the Houthis are very anti-American, anti-Israel group. Um, so, you know, what Secretary Austin said yesterday is we can't just let these um, attacks threaten global commerce. And so th basically the Biden administration is saying we need to take a stand on certain things. Obviously, force protection is one of them. But then the principle, for example, of freedom of navigation, of the ability of global commerce to um, proceed unimpeded. So, um, you know, they are really trying to strike the right balance and, and nobody knows whether they will have gotten that right. Well, since you've mentioned Secretary Austin, let's talk um, about another big thing that came out of the secretary's uh, press conference yesterday. He delivered a mea culpa. Uh, let's listen to part of it. I want to be crystal clear. We did not handle this right, and I did not handle this right. I should have told the president about my cancer diagnosis. I should have also told my team and the American public. And I take full responsibility. I apologize to my teammates and to the American people.
So let me say two things on this. One, um, the, the, the secretary is standing within, within the cabinet. Does he have the full support of President Biden? That is what the, the, the White House has said repeatedly, is that Biden stands by him. They have a close personal relationship. They go back quite a while. Um, they, I think the, the White House is trying to sort of bat down any suggestion that Austin's job is in danger, while at the same time acknowledging that they think that there was some really bad judgment here um, that raised real questions about the chain of command, about the um, continuity of command, and 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 also just sort of transparency and best practices for communication. So I don't think his job is in immediate danger, but you know I think one of the factors that we need to think about here going forward is how big a deal Congress will continue to make of this, and um, if they you know are complaining all the time, if there is bipartisan criticism that continues then that could really create a distraction that would make it more problematic for Biden to keep him in office. Uh, I think that we're going to see, he's only been back, you know, less than a week at the Pentagon. So it's a little too early to see. And there's some sort of pending correspondence between him and key congressional figures. So we're, we're going to have to see how that plays out. But so far, the White House is standing by Secretary Austin. Well, speaking of those key congressional figures, um, the secretary has been asked by House Armed Services Committee Chairman Mike Rogers to testify about the secrecy surrounding his hospital stay. Yesterday, you asked Secretary Austin if he would testify. He didn't directly say he would. How likely is it that he will? Yeah, he d definitely did not uh, give a, a direct answer there, and he declined to say that he would comply with this request, which, you know, it notably is coming from the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, which is one of two oversight committees for the Pentagon, for Secretary Austin. So um, I think the, what the Pentagon is trying to do right now is sort of suss out how they can um, satisfy these demands from Congress without necessarily subjecting him to what could be um, a really um, difficult public testimony. I mean, I think that it would not be a good look for him to have to answer questions about his health and about the sort of breakdown in communication that he has acknowledged has occurred. The Pentagon has cited some concerns about the sensitivity of um, details of their chain of command and the classifications of, of some elements of that. So they may push for some sort of closed hearing rather than an open hearing, but clearly that would also suit them um, from a political perspective because part of what um, they're trying to avoid here is you know, continuing the story in the news, um, which does not look good for Secretary Austin. Missy Ryan, Washington Post diplomatic and national security correspondent or reporter, thank you. Very Thank much you. for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Time for the Opinions Roundtable. So let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post associate editor and columnist Eugene Robinson and Washington Post columnist George Will. I got the order right. You're stacked on top of each other. Gene and George, welcome <laughs> back to First Look. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Um, so the January jobs numbers just came out about within the last half hour, 300, wait, I wrote them down and I was going to ask about this later, um, but I'm going to ask about it now. 353,000 jobs created, unemployment rate remaining at 3.7%, two straight years of the unemployment rate being under 4%.
And this comes after a report last week showing that the last quarter growth of 2023, um, the econo economy grew by 3.3%. Um, gentlemen, has the hoped for soft landing been achieved? Gene, you go first. Um, well, I think it's it, it, at this point, it certainly looks like a soft landing. I don't know if we're landing at all. <laughs> it seems to, to still be flying. Um, uh, that These are incredible numbers. The December number got revised, uh, uh, the previous month's number got revised up um, as well. So this is a very strong, very healthy economy. Um, I, you know, one wonders how the Fed is going to take these uh, numbers and whether this will cause the Fed to keep interest rates uh, at the current level, perhaps a bit longer. We'll have to see. Uh, but uh, th this is actually this is great news for people uh, who live in this country. Wages are <laughs> rising uh, fast, uh, you know, in faster than inflation, and inflation is down, and everybody's got a job. George, do you share Gene's unbridled optimism? <laughs> My cheerfulness is even less bridled than his. Uh, <laughs> he. he he missed the memo that says the, the phrase good news is an oxymoron. We don't report the planes that land safely and all that. Look, this is just wonderful. The fact is that it's hard to stop the American people from creating wealth if you just get out of their way. And uh, they're doing a wonderful job. It's not hard to understand why the southern border is in crisis because people are dying, literally dying to get in here and go to work. And by the way, we need them because there are more job vacancies than there are unemployed workers right now. But the country is in such a dyspeptic mood that it's immune to good news. It's phenomenal. This is a nation uh, that ought to go back and reread Steinbeck's uh, The Grapes of Wrath. They ought to take a good look at some of Dorothea Lange's photographs of uh, migrant workers and others during the Depression to get a sense of just how good life is in America right now. If Joe Biden is beside himself uh, with his inability to convince people that the economy is doing pretty well, I sympathize with him. <laughs> so let's talk. Uh, let's take a serious turn here. And as I re reported at the beginning of the, the um, show, the president and first lady are heading to Dover um, for the dignified transfer of the remains of those three service members who were killed. Uh, uh, earlier, well, uh, over the weekend, Gene, what should the U.S. military response be um, for that, for those killings? Well, you know, I think it's pretty clear there needs to be a response. I, and, and and so the response will be pretty much what Missy said it will be, I think. It'll be um, stronger than what we've done so far. Um, you know, it, it does beg the question though, uh, are we going to have a consistent policy uh, in, in this region? Are, are we, um, you know, long, long term going to keep, uh, going to maintain these uh, small bases, uh, which um, uh, many people would argue are, are at a relatively low cost, um, performing a, a, a vital role in, in, in preventing the comeback of ISIS? Um, uh, and are we going to sustain that from administration to administration, from Congress to Congress? Um, uh, and I think that's an open question. 
uh, as there seems to be a, a kind of questioning of, of our foreign commitments. And so that's kind of what I'm worrying about. How long are we in this for? And, and George, Secretary Blinken, uh, Secretary of State Blinken said this week that the Middle East is at its most dangerous point in 50 years. Do you agree with him? I do agree. Oh, looks like George is frozen. Well, we'll, we'll try to get George back. Gene, um, what do you think? Is yeah. the secretary right? Uh, I think, I, you know, I'm just not sure. We've seen a lot of dangerous points in the last 50 years. Uh, and, um, uh, and, uh, and if he is right, um, then I'm, I, 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 I would love to, to hear an articulation of how um, we think things are going to get better. Um, do we think that this this sort of grand um, bargain that the administration is pr trying to arrange with uh, the Saudis and with uh, Israel agreeing to a Palestinian state and and the relations between those those you know the Saudis and, and Israel and uh, reshaping the Middle East that way is is that really a viable option given uh, the political situation in Israel right now, given uh, the Saudi point of view, is that really going to happen? And if it does happen, is what sort of impact is it really going to have? Uh, I, it, it is a mess. And um, mm. I wish, you know, I wish a lot of things. I wish we had not pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. I wish we had um, uh, a, a channel to speak with the Iranians, not to make concessions to them, but to to um, to, to sort of understand uh, each other's positions better. Um, uh, and I wish um, uh, we I, I wish there were a ceasefire in Gaza at this point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think all these things would would help this really volatile situation. Um, I don't know in what direction it could go, but most of the possibilities are really bad. I want to tell everyone we're still trying to get George Will back. As you saw, his, his screen froze. So as soon as we get him back, we will, we will pull him up on the screen. But Gene, um, you know, Secretary Austin gave his first press conference since uh, his yeah. cancer diagnosis and the secrecy around his emergency hospitalization. Um, Will his mea culpa to, to the American people be enough, or, or will he have to testify before Chairman Rogers' uh, committee? You know, I think it's hard for the Secretary of Defense not to be responsive to the oversight committees um, in, in the House and, and the Senate if they chose to call him up there. Um, uh, it, it, you know, I, I think he does, uh, obviously he doesn't want to have to do that. And, uh, I think his relationship with Mike Rogers has been pretty good. Uh, and, um, so maybe they can work something out. I, I think the, the, uh, the argument, and I think Rogers would understand this argument, uh, for President Biden's decision to stick with Secretary Austin, despite what was a serious lapse. I mean, it was a breach in the chain of command. Um, I, I, if the president doesn't know where the Secretary of Defense is, 
certainly doesn't know that he's in the ICU. Um, uh, you know, what would have happened if, if there were a crisis, if U.S. troops needed to be deployed, uh, and you look for the Secretary of Defense, and uh, that's, that's a bad situation. In the end, however, precisely because of everything we've been talking about. We haven't even talked, we haven't really talked about Ukraine yet. There's a huge war going on in Ukraine. The Middle East is on fire. There's this, um, there are all these moving pieces. Secretary Austin uh, knows these conflicts, knows the players uh, involved in all these con uh, conflicts. Uh, and I would be really reluctant, uh, and I think Mike Rogers will understand this, I would be really reluctant to change Horses in the middle of the street. Um, this is not the time when you want to to have an, an acting Secretary of Defense. I'm not sure a a permanent Secretary of Defense uh, could be confirmed right. uh, in an election year. I kind of doubt it. Um, so President Biden is right to stick with Secretary Austin, and I think Secretary Austin maybe can can work something out with Mike Rogers. As you can see, we have George Will back. And so, George, I'm going to use your return as an opportunity to switch gears and talk about the 2024 um, race for the Republican presidential nomination. You wrote a column this week where you described Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley as, quote, the last candle fending off darkness. Elaborate. I think it's important to understand that Nikki Haley is, as she likes to say, a street fighter in heels. She's a happy warrior, and she's having tremendous fun needling Donald Trump. Uh, he, he's easy to needle, particularly if you have, as Nikki Haley has, two X chromosomes. The idea of a, this impertinent woman uh, who refuses to curtsy and slink out of the room because he thinks he's won this. He's probably going to win, but probabilities are only probabilities. And Nikki Haley became governor starting at 3% in the polls. And in about three weeks, just the amount of time left in the South Carolina primary, she to the top of the heap, defeating two senior leaders in South Carolina Republican politics. So I think it's a little too early to count her out. And while she's doing it, enjoy the spectacle, because it really is great fun as she tries. Makes really no secret about this. She tries to make him lose his composure. Right. When he does, right. It'll be Vesuvian and great fun. <laughs> yes, Vesuvian is is the word. And you, you, I want to get you a one more thing, George, because you write that the Haley campaign quote is wagering that Trump cannot keep his composure for four for four weeks, assuming he can't, because we all know he can't. What do they expect to happen? I think they'd like to see uh, kind of South Carolina chauvinism kick in. Mm. And at long last, the decisive swing vote in, in American politics these days, which are college-educated suburban women, uh, to become terminally tired of a president who be behaves in ways that they would not allow their eight-year-old to behave. Gene, um, uh, you are from South Carolina. So I'd love to yeah. get your insight on, on this, especially since the latest Washington Post Monmouth University poll released yesterday shows that Donald Trump holds a 26-point lead over Haley. Is there any scenario you can think of where Haley performs well enough 
to remain a viable candidate? You know, I kind of agree with George. Now, I'm going down to South Carolina later today. Uh, and I'll be down there for a few days. So maybe I'll have more insight when I get back. I hope I will. Um, but I don't discount the possibility. I, I actually think she'll do a lot better than that poll suggests she will do. I think she will come closer to Trump than that, certainly. And I, 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 three weeks is a long time. She is a very good campaigner in South Carolina. She does know the state really well. All the elected uh, officials, uh, the Republicans have endorsed Trump and are against her, and that might not hurt her very much. Um, uh, she's, she's good at convincing people. And so we will see, we will see. Uh, but I, I predict a, a, a closer finish uh, than that poll suggests, and and as we've all said, three weeks is a long time. Mm -hmm. um, in the about four four minutes that we have left, um, and since we've already talked about the economy, I want to have a little fun, um, especially because there is a Politico story with this great headline: "What Biden Really Says About Trump Behind Closed Doors." In the lead paragraph goes, President Joe Biden has a reputation for salty language behind closed doors, but it nearly slipped out in public during a speech at Valley Forge last month to mark the third anniversary of this January 6th insurrection. Uh, and then it goes on to give the lead up. And then, you know, where the president uh, said, you know, what a sick, and then he let the words drop off. Th this article has created a bit of a, a bit of a firestorm. <laughs> and here's the, here's the, the quote from the Trump campaign, quote, it's a shame that crooked Joe Biden disrespects the presidency both publicly and privately. Uh -oh. Irony is dead. George. Yeah. Well, there's a mistake in the Trump campaign to equate their men with the office he seeks. Uh, it is, as you say, well known that Joe Biden has salty language in private. Uh, Donald Trump has salty language in public. Depends on which you prefer. Right. <laughs> I mean, Gene. Uh, no, that's absolutely right. Uh, and I, you know, I think that the interesting thing about that story is that it does get at what motivates Joe Biden. He ran for president uh, in uh, 2020 because he thought Donald Trump was was a danger to this country uh, and um, had to be defeated. And he thought he was the only one who could do it. Uh, and he did it. Uh, and that's why he's running again. Uh, he thinks that uh, he, he knows um, uh, that Donald Trump has to be has to be beaten, can't be president again. And he believes, um, whether he's right or wrong on this, uh, but he believes he's the only one who can do it. And um, uh, and this shows the sort of passion uh, with which he feels that and how he looks at Trump. Um, you know, that's, that's Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, uh, I agree with you. I agree with you, Gene, that it, um, it sort of get put gets you under the under the hood 
uh, of Joe Biden and and his personality. And he's somebody. You know how there does there's some people who have a facility with foul language where you sit back and you're like, wow, that is he's very articulately foul, foul. Uh, and, and and the president has that has that facility. I mean, George, one of the one of the knocks against um, politicians is that they don't seem real. Um, and one of the knocks against President Biden is that, well, he he's too old. I, I look at a story like this and think, you know, grumpy grandpa has a lot of energy, and that's that's what I'm looking for. Does this does this humanize and sort of take some of the some of the um, uh, ageist sheen off the criticism of him. Well, one of my heroes, my hero as a, as a columnist is the late Murray Kempton, who once said the resemblance between American politics and professional wrestling is the absence of honest passion. So it's not it's <laughs> nice from uh, Mr. Biden. <laughs> I'm glad I and I'm glad I ended the show with this because you know there's so much bad news and sad news um, that we have to discuss and talk about that it is fun to be able to to get us laughing uh, at the end of a very long week. Eugene Robinson, George Will, as always, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. And you too. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.